everyone. I am Liam Burke, Managing Director with B. Riley Securities, and I'd like to welcome you to Capital Link Shipping Sectors webinar series. In this series, we have an opportunity to delve into the latest trends, challenges, and opportunities shaping the shipping sector. Today's webinar is on the LNG shipping market. We have with us Mr. Jerry Caligaratos, CEO of Capital Product Partners, LP. Mr. Richard Tyrell, CEO of Cool Company Limited. Mr. Carl Frederick Stabo, CEO of Golar LNG. The opening slide contains information to which each company is listed and their ticker symbols. The webinar will consist of a roundtable discussion with the moderator and panelists. It will last for about an hour, with about 45 minutes allotted to the panel discussion, followed by a 15-minute or so Q&A session. Participants can submit their questions through a Q&A button on your screen during the webinar. Your questions will be answered during the Q&A session. Please note Capital Link will be conducting three polls during the, during the webinar that will strictly be used for informational and educational purposes. We would appreciate your participation in answering these poll questions. Before we begin our call, please note this discussion is strictly for informational and educational purposes and should not be relied upon. The webinar does not constitute an offer to buy or sell securities or invest investment advice or advice of any kind, and Capital Link bears no responsibility for the content. In terms of further disclosure, Capital Link is the investor relations advisor to some of the companies participating in the webinar. Also, B. Riley Securities. At B. Riley Securities, I cover all of the shipping companies included in today's webinar. With all that behind us, we can now start our discussion. And just as a reminder, we will, after the uh, panel discussion, have the polling questions uh, brought up. Anyway, uh, to start out, um, all of your businesses add to the global fungibility of natural gas, either through LNG transport or LNG production and liquefaction. Uh, looking at natural gas uh, and particularly LNG, uh, it is sometimes viewed as a transitionary or uh, a fuel in order to buy time for the build out of the infrastructure of renewables like offshore wind and solar or as a less, uh, a more environmental friendly alternative to coal. Is natural gas and derivative LNG a transitionary type of fuel or is it actually a uh, long-term economical, environmentally friendly uh, fuel solution for the long-term? Uh, with that long overview, uh, if we could start with Carl on your thoughts on that. Hi, uh, and thanks everyone for, for dialing in here. Um, I think the, the question is how long is medium term and long term? I think over the very long term, everything is transitional the way we see it. But I believe that LNG has a vital role to play uh, going forward. Today, LNG comprises of around 3% of the global energy mix and including natural gas, 24%. In fact, LNG and natural gas is estimated to be the second fastest growing source of energy between now and 2030, only beaten by renewables. 
Natural gas and LNG's market share uh, is expected to then grow from 24 to 29% of the global energy mix, and specifically LNG from around 3 to 5% of the global energy mix. In fact, LNG is an enabler of renewables in several locations. Because when you do not have uh, wind, sun, or rain, 24 7, 365, uh, you are reliant on a flexible backup source of energy. And their natural gas is unique in its attributes that you can very quickly turn on and off a gas fired power plant with far less emissions than if you tried to do the same with an oil fueled or coal fueled uh, power plant. And, and as we all know, um, nuclear power plants uh, have not yet uh, been able to be turned off and on again without the cost in, in sort of several hundred million dollars. So subject to how long the definition of medium and long term, I, I believe that LNG has a vital role to play for a very long time. And I think its role is increasing in terms of importance and it enables um, a greener uh, energy future. Jerry, you have any color to add to that? Thank you, Carl. No, I fully agree with um, with Carl. In the end, um, I think um, when it comes to tackling climate change, uh, we are all for adopting realistic solutions uh, as soon as possible. And uh, LNG has been singled out one of these um, um, sources of energy that uh, can deliver significant reductions in emissions. And at the same time, and this is not uh, something that um, uh, we should underestimate, it also delivers um, uh, better uh, air quality in, in big cities. So uh, I think uh, demand for um, uh, LNG uh, is expected to, um, to, to continue to grow um, quite, um, uh, quite robust over the next uh, 20 years or so. Uh, as uh, Carl pointed out, uh, it's uh, the issue of intermittency when it comes to renewables, but it's also the uh, obviously the adoption of uh, less uh, clean uh, um, source of energy like uh, coal. And we have seen that uh, um, uh, across uh, a number of countries. But in the end, uh, um, natural gas and specifically also uh, LNG um, um, and its infrastructure can uh, play a role even in a decarbonized uh, world uh, through um, uh, carbon capture uh, or as a hydrogen carrier uh, through um, the um, ELNG um, uh, venue. So I think that um, both natural gas and LNG will continue to be very much in demand as we move towards decarbonization, uh, but also assets that are related to natural gas and LNG, such as pipelines, uh, vessels, uh, will also play a significant role even uh, as we move away from, uh, from hydrocarbons. So um, the um, decarbonization is, does not necessarily mean that uh, um, the, we will move away from uh, uh, the way we do business today. Richard, any other final thoughts on this topic? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys. And thanks, thanks, Liam. Uh, this is Richard. Uh, I'm the CEO of Coolco, and uh, we're a LNG shipping company. So naturally, we think about the LNG value chain all, all the time. And um, and I think in general, I mean, an overarching comment is that I think capital uh, is being quite badly misallocated in the race to tackle climate change. And uh, LNG can do more in the short to medium term than a lot of alternatives that are currently proposed. The amount of coal that's being burnt in China and India is an outcome of a lot of LNG going to Europe at the moment. And the result of that is 50% greater emissions. Uh, thankfully, I think that the growth in LNG capacity will see more volumes going east going forward, which will create greater demand for, for shipping. And uh, you know, more importantly, in many ways, uh, see CO2 emissions coming down as a result. Longer term, uh, you know, do we see LNG having a continuing role? Uh, yeah, absolutely, we do. We do. Uh, it um, can meet peak demand in partnership with renewables. And uh, we see an increasing uptake in uh, shipping and long distance trucking as well. LNG and renewables are set to be complementary in, in our view, with the ultimate need for LNG dependent on the need for storage, peakers and energy security. Our responsibility is to make the shipping element of the value chain as efficient as possible. And uh, that's what we aim to do. Thank you, Richard. Um, we can zero in on certain markets. Uh, Europe has become one of the largest or the largest importer of LNG. Obviously, the Ukraine conflict has uh, curtailed uh, Russia pipeline uh, natural gas imports. There have been offsets, uh, usually mild weather, plus stepped up uh, pipeline exports from both Algeria and Norway. But what are the dynamics for sustained demand for natural gas? And of course, LNG is a major part of that in Europe. Uh, if we could start with Jerry on that. Jerry? Sorry, uh, unmuting. So, um... Yeah, thank you, Liam. This is really an interesting uh, uh, question. And um, I think the, the global energy crisis that was set off by the Russian-Ukraine war reminded us uh, about the critical importance of energy security um, and um, when, when it, uh, what, what happens uh, if we don't uh, pay enough uh, attention. And Europe um, has been effectively uh, been um, in uh, hibernation when it came to um, to its uh, dependence on um, uh, Russian natural gas, pipeline gas, and uh, there was a rude awakening uh, when the war started. Um, effectively, LNG um, came to, to the rescue, and it has played a crucial role in bolstering energy security and delivering, of course, energy over the last couple of years to European consumers. Um, and um, this is because LNG is a very flexible um, um, means of uh, transporting uh, energy, natural gas, um, and um, went on to, uh, to replace um, the the Russian pipeline gas by importing uh, almost 66% more in terms of LNG uh, last year. It, importantly, also, we have seen um, a, a number of European markets, including Germany, Netherlands, uh, Finland, France, Italy, having initiated plans for LNG infrastructure. Um, 
This includes 26 projects with a combined regasification capacity of 104 uh, MTPA. Um, importantly, also, a lot of that capacity is coming in floating terminals, uh, which can be deployed um, uh, faster uh, than onshore terminals. Uh, and many of them uh, have been already commissioned, uh, bringing in uh, this much needed uh, ability for Europe to um, uh, import uh, um, natural gas in the form of uh, LNG. Um, so overall, uh, I do think uh, that um, uh, the, the European Union um, and the Europe uh, as a whole, having uh, now seen um, both the risks of long-term dependency on pipeline gas, but also the flexibility that LNG um, uh, brings to energy um, security and uh, independence. Um, I, I expect uh, LNG imports to become uh, a permanent uh, stable of um, um, the European energy mix. And uh, that even if um, the uh, Russia-Ukraine war was to end uh, tomorrow, uh, it is highly unlikely that we will go back to the um, uh, pipeline business as we knew it. I think the floating pipelines, uh, that is um, LNG carriers uh, and regasification units uh, have proved to, to, to be much more um, cost-effective and agile in situations uh, like the one that we're, like the ones that we're experiencing today. Okay, uh, Richard, can I ask a similar question on China? It is the second largest importer of LNG, very important market. Could you help us out on some of the long longer term dynamics there? Sure, and uh, I think China is the area where there's huge potential for LNG, and uh, it's going to be where a lot of the growth in supply is going to going to be heading, uh, because I think on the whole. While um, LNG has been a savior uh, for, for Europe, uh, you know, Europe is adequately uh, supplied now. Uh, there's um, a little bit less pull from uh, the, the electricity space or sector because of the French nuclear being, um, uh, power being up and running again. Um, you know, maybe industry will come back a bit in Europe, but uh, generally um, I think it's adequately supplied. However, China is the area which gave up its volumes in order to send uh, the recent volumes to to Europe, and um, it's got the um, it's got the regas capacity. Uh, I think it's just a bit price sensitive, and um, in addition, in China, of course, uh, environmental considerations are a driver. However, it's a little bit different to how they're they're a driver in Europe, and maybe they're a little bit more focused on getting rid of soot in the air than uh, reducing uh, CO two. But uh, ultimately, um, there will be pull from China at the right price. And if you look at where prices are heading, um, I think we're getting there. Uh, so uh, I guess in summary, I do expect to see some price el elasticity of, of, of demand. And it's going to be a good thing for shipping because of the distances involved. Right. Uh, Carla, we wrap up the topic on, on markets. If you have any uh, anything to add to China, Europe would be great. But I think that the question I want to ask you is, do you see any other regions in the market with the growth potential that we're seeing in either Europe or China? Yeah, I think my colleagues here covered uh, all of the big trends. What I would say, just to finish up on the previous topic, is um, we're impressed to see the adaptability of Europe. Uh, 
pre the the Ukraine situation, we had three FSRUs across Europe. Uh, within in less than six months, another nine FSRUs were tied up um, as import terminals in Europe. Not all of them are operational yet, but LNG import capacity is no longer a constraint to service the, the European LNG uh, consumption. Uh, so that was a very remar remarkable uh, turnaround, and I think the quickest deployment of FSRUs the world has ever seen. Uh, so, so that was uh, one, one to note. When it comes to China, uh, China, if you look at numbers from, from Restart Energy, the uh, world LNG market will grow from currently around 400 million tons to around 690 million tons by 2035. So that's a 290 uh, million tons increase, and 250 of those are estimated to come out of China. So that uh, further backs up Richard's uh, story about where most of the incremental uh, consumption will be directed. However, we see several other uh, countries in uh, Asia being increasingly important. Uh, you have India, uh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, and other places uh, that could see increased LNG demand. Um, what we do see for uh, the Far East in general is that they seem to be far more price sensitive uh, compared to, for example, Europe. And by price sensitivity, it's the relative price of LNG as a source of energy uh, versus alternatives, even if the alternatives is more polluting, like coal, oil, diesel, and so forth. So what you saw during the Ukraine situation was that Europe was actually the redirecting all of the cargoes that was went on long-term uh, offtakes, uh, where the Chinese were off-takers of, of American gas. And you saw that uh, gas or LNG then redirected into Europe and then coal consumption in China going through the roof. Uh, so interestingly, it was actually mainly Chinese off-takers that made the majority of the uplift and not the American LNG suppliers, uh, because it's obviously going to a Chinese uh, intermediary. So um, where we see it is that the trend is obviously increased production, mainly out of Qatar and the US. Most of it is going to China, but there are several other uh, countries in the Far East that also see remarkable year-on-year growth numbers. And what this is really about is the relative price of LNG in addition to the uh, environmental benefits. Great, thank you, Carl. Um, we're gonna move into more company specific and we're gonna start with the carriers. So it'll be uh, Jerry and Richard, and then we'll start talking about the FLNG in a moment. But um, we're looking at potentially a lot of delays in the LNG production side while we're seeing more uh, vessels being delivered into the global fleet. And admittedly, this is the near-term dislocation, but there's going to probably be excess fleet supply globally, probably through the end of 2025. Um, starting with Jerry, could you share with us how your fleet is positioned, not only through this period of Black, uh, excess supply, but coming out of this in the 26th time frame, when the supply-demand equation will not equalize or even flip. So we only have uh, very limited exposure in the market in the next uh, couple of years. Um, 
all of our uh, vessels that are due for delivery in 2024, uh, that's um, another four vessels. Um, they are fixed uh, to long-term uh, contracts at uh, attractive rates. Um, and um, really our first uh, open vessel is not before the first quarter of 2026. Uh, this is followed by another uh, three new builds. So we have a total of four uh, new building ships that um, will be coming up for delivery and uh, employment in 2026. Uh, and another two in the first quarter of 2027. I would also um, add here that um, um, we have another vessel that has been delivered um, uh, at the end of October of this year, that is on a very lucrative uh, three-year charter, and uh, she's also to be re-delivered uh, in the fourth quarter of 2026. So all in all, we have uh, effectively uh, seven vessels coming up uh, for, um, uh, for employment between the first quarter of 2026 and the first quarter of 2027. Um, and I think we are quite uh, happy with uh, this exposure. Uh, as um, you know, this is the time that uh, between 2026 and 2028, that um, we see a number of the new liquefaction projects um, uh, coming online. Um, and uh, by um, engaging with um, uh, liquefaction operators, utility companies, um, energy majors, uh, and uh, the likes, I think this is going to be a very busy period with um, many of these uh, players um, coming to the market with multi-vessel uh, inquiries. Um, so while I do agree with you that in terms of new projects, um, the period between 2024 and 2026 is uh, quite muted, um, I would still say that um, uh, one uh, should um, uh, should be cautious before calling this a softer market uh, for many reasons. Of course, uh, there is uh, the, um, the technology differentials and uh, as ETS kicks in, um, uh, especially steamships uh, will have will be penalized and uh, uh, and many charters uh, as some of the steam uh, turbine vessels are coming off charter, they will be seeking to replace them with uh, modern two-stroke vessels, but even um, if you set this aside, um, all, overall LNG fleet utilization remains quite high and it doesn't take much for the market to move very quickly upwards. Um, I think in Europe and Asia, um, we have been quite fortunate as far as energy prices at least um, and energy security to experience fairly uh, mild weathers, uh, mild winters um, but um, I think um, cold spells that are not accounted for uh, in Europe or, uh, or the Asia Pacific region, other disruptions in energy markets. Um, you know, just um, a month and a half ago, we were discussing about potential industrial action in, in uh, liquefaction um, uh, in Australia. All this could very quickly move um, uh, fleet utilization uh, higher. Um, and um, uh, charter rates uh, soaring. So I, I think overall LNG shipping is in a good spot and especially for the 2026 onwards um, uh, period uh, where we happen to have 
most of our um, um, uh, new exposure, if you want, I think we are quite uh, quite bullish. Richard, yeah, and for us, uh, we've uh, got everything from a ship which is currently in the spot market all the way through to a ship which delivers in ten years' time with an average contract length of over four years. Uh, so uh, we we do have to think about the nearer term and. Um, I think I'd say a few things. Uh, firstly, we've talked a little bit about the new supply having to go further. And uh, just to put that into context, supply to Europe typically takes one ship per uh, million tons of LNG. Uh, the same volumes to China, if they're going via the Panama Canal, will take two ships. And if the Panama Canal limitations persist, then It'll, it'll be three ships. Uh, so, so these are big uh, incremental changes in, in capacity. And uh, we, we view that as being something that will certainly support the market. Uh, the other um, aspect, which I think is important to appreciate, is that the cost of new builds has been going up quite significantly recently. And this compares with the last decade when the cost of new builds would go, go down every single year uh, for a better and better ship. Now, the cost of new builds is going up and up and up uh, for, for, for the same ship. So it's so up over 30% over the last few years. And that very much anchors uh, prices, especially when you combine that increase in cost with the increase in financing cost. Uh, and uh, yeah, we now see that uh, the, the clearing rate for a new build ship is plus or minus $100,000 a day. And uh, uh, the other ships tend to trade at a discount to that based on their size and, uh, and, and efficiency. And we don't really see that changing. The last um, point, uh, which I think, and this is where the balancing uh, comes in, is, as Jerry mentioned, it's the steamships. It's partly because of CII, but I think it's even more so because of commercial aspects. And uh, these were uh, vessels that were given an extra lease of life, quite frankly, over the, over the uh, war in the Ukraine, because the industry needed the extra capacity um, at short notice. Going forward, we're going to see those ships and uh, other ships which are coming off their long-term contracts either idled or leave the market altogether. And uh, this will be what balances the supply demand, which you referred to in your question, Lynn. Well, yeah, you, you bring up some good points about the age of the fleet, Panama Canal. The fact is coming out of this, uh, when production does ramp up and we'll call it 2026, uh, you're in not only good shape for that, but also getting through that period of, of what looks to be less tight supply, put it that way. Um, flipping over to you, Carl. Um, LNG production 23 and 24 has become muted. Um, you've secured very attractive charters for your two FLNGs. Um, how does the FL, your, your thoughts on production increases in 26 and 27 affect your decisions on the rechartering of Hilly in 2026 and the launch of your next FLN, uh, Mark II FLNG. Thanks, Liam. That's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting discussion to have around that. So if you take uh, supply meant to come on between 2025 and 2027, we're looking at just around 90 million tons of LNG to be added to the market. The driver here is really the US, who's adding around 62 million tons alone, 
Then you have around uh, 12 million tons from Qatar and then 19 million tons from, from elsewhere. As we alluded to earlier in the call, there's a very strong demand for that uh, LNG. Um, so we do think that there's plenty of capacity to further increase that. Where we see our uniqueness is that we're mainly focused on West Africa and monetizing associated or stranded gas fields. On the supply side of LNG, you basically have three cost drivers. The cost of lifting the gas, the cost of liquefying the gas, and the cost of transporting the gas. Hence, if you're in West Africa, we argue that you can produce associated or stranded gas significantly cheaper than Henry Hub, which is the input cost for the US export projects. We have a capex per ton, which is around half of what you can build shore-based liquefaction plants for in the US today. And lastly, the shipping distance from West Africa, both to end users in the Far East and in Europe, is far shorter than that of the US, which is the biggest incremental producer then of LNG. Hence, if you have a business with three cost drivers, and you're significantly cheaper on all three counts, uh, then we think that's a very attractive position to be in. Specifically, when it comes to Hilly and further growth FLNG projects that we might undertake, Golar is currently the only service provider of FLNG as a service in the world today. And if you go and order an FLNG today, there's no way she'll be delivered and operational uh, during second half of 26, which is when um, Hilly is up for recontracting. So if you are a government or a gas resource owner, whether that's an IOC, an NOC, or uh, an independent uh, gas company, the only way, the only tool in the world available to monetize your asset is Hilly. And she's then again available from July 26. So if there are anyone uh, dialing in who have those resources, uh, we are actively working to, to redeploy now. Uh, and, and that's um, our focus. And also how we see the growth. We think going forward, the world needs, I think we, we learned the hard way that it's helpful to be diversified in your energy, um, energy sources. Um, and when Qatar and US are really the two only ones adding significant volumes, we think the world would do, do itself a service by further diversifying uh, search sources, both from a security but a equally important uh, cost point of view, which is why we think that uh, we should get going on monetizing the more than $100 billion of 100 billion uh, barrel of oil equivalent of stranded gas reserves, proven stranded gas reserves in West Africa. Great, thank you, Carl. Uh, Richard, can we just touch on, uh, on the, you mentioned the Panama Canal. I, I just want to broaden the discussion of what's going on in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. Um, the length of this uncertainty, I mean, is, is this something you can count on for a long time or it just it just seems that congestion is, is going to increase and it's not just in the Panama Canal it seems to be with unrest throughout the rest of the world 
Yeah, gosh, well, I, I wish I could forecast the weather and uh, geopolitics. <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm not sure I can. Fine. Just the weather. But, but just the weather <laughs> would be would be fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess you know. Let's put it into context, right? I mean, if uh, a ship is going to go from the uh, Gulf of Mexico to the east through the Panama Canal, it will take about 28 days. If it's going to go uh, round the Cape of Good Hope, which is actually going around in the other direction, that's the uh, that's uh, down uh, in in South Africa. Uh, then it will take about forty one days, and um, the incremental days on a round trip basis, therefore, is about twenty twenty six days. And this is why you go from two ships to 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 to, to three ships under that uh, scenario. Now, how long how long will it will it last? Uh, well, in the case of the Panama Canal. Uh, they um, are waiting now for the rainy season, fundamentally. And uh, that's not due to come until May, uh, whether it comes and uh, in what sort of um, volumes uh, will depend upon El Nino and uh, all sorts of very, very difficult to predict type of uh, factors. So, you know, we'll, we, we really will have to see, but uh, that's a big swing factor in the industry, um, you know, as is uh, uh, the Suez Canal uh, to some extent as, as well, uh, because that will... Um, bung up shipping and uh, you know, generally these things has a positive overall effect. Thanks, Richard. Jerry, do you have anything to add before we move to the next question on the uh, on the congestion issue? Yeah, sure. The Panama Canal obviously um, um, closure or partial closure um, could be uh, overall um, certain kinds of uh, shipping. Um, LNG already, LNG vessels and LNG for some time. Um, and as a result, um, we have seen um, that um, many charters would avoid uh, the Panama Canal um, in, in any case, even before uh, this uh, issue arose. Um, the Panama Canal authorities would typically allocate two to three um, transits uh, of LNG vessels um, uh, per day. Uh, this could be reduced uh, further, one or zero, who knows. Uh, but overall, uh, because of the fact that the Panama Canal has um, uh, been unreliable in terms of the waiting days, and secondly, because also um, we have seen uh, a lot of uh, U.S. liquefaction operators uh, exporting LNG to Europe. Uh, thus, uh, no, there was no obvious need to go through the Panama uh, Canal. Uh, I think the LNG industry will probably be less affected than others uh, because of the Panama Canal uh, disruptions. Uh, but uh, Overall, uh, the I think anything any type of um, disruption that generates uh, ton mile could be beneficial for fleet utilization, of course, uh, charter rates. Great, thank you. Um, all three of your businesses generate very predictable uh, revenues and cash flows. Look at the dividend yields. Um, both Golar and CPLPs yield around four and a half percent. Coolco's is north of 14% on dividend yield. But uh, beginning with uh, uh, Carl, could you discuss capital allocation, not only in terms of your dividend payout, but in the broader scheme of your fleet management and, uh, and uh, shareholder allocation? 
Yeah. Um, so one thing is dividend yield, but we have an equally big uh, buyback program. Uh, so if you look at, uh, for now, we're paying 25 cents a quarter. We have 105 million shares outstanding. So per year, we're paying $105 million. Earlier this year, we put in place a buyback program of $150 million. And based on a press release we pushed out last week, uh, we've spent just over 60 of that. So if you look at total return to shareholder, it's more than just the yield. The reason why we've decided to do it that way is because we deem the share price to be very attractive, currently trading around book value. And we think that we've created significantly more value than book. Um, when it comes to capital allocation altogether, our ambition is to return operating cash flow to uh, shareholders. We then have around $1 billion of cash on the balance sheet, and we're planning to, to use that for attractive FLNG growth projects. Um, that's really quite simplistically put our capital allocation idea. More straightforward. Jerry, you've been very busy on the fleet front, so I'll turn it to you. Uh, thank you, Liam. Um, so as far as we are concerned, um, we recently announced the acquisition of um, 11 uh, new uh, LNG uh, carriers. That's uh, uh, an acquisition uh, valued at uh, 3.1 uh, billion. Um, the vessels uh, start to deliver from um, uh, as soon as we uh, close our equity raise. Uh, that is. Uh, um, in um, in a week or or so, uh, and then throughout 2024, 2026, and 2027. Um, once uh, this um, um, acquisition um, is completed, we will own a fleet of uh, 18 um, uh, two-stroke uh, LNG carriers with uh, an average fleet age of um, 3.2 uh, years. Uh, a very uh, a very modern uh, fleet um, with um, uh, contracted revenues uh, from the LNG fleet alone of 2.5 uh, billion and 6.5 years of remaining charter duration. Um, the pro forma um, EBITDA of uh, the combined fleet, that is the LNG carriers, and if you want the legacy uh, fleet of the 15 container vessels that we have, um, will be. Um, uh, to the north of uh, $600 million uh, um, with uh, a potential for um, a free cash flow per year of um, uh, close to $150 million uh, um, uh, after debt service. Um, currently, um, in order to finance this acquisition, we are uh, doing a rights offering of uh, half a billion dollars, $500 million, uh, which is fully backstop. Um, and we, as I said, that we expect to close this um, um, this week. And in addition to that, uh, the, there is a vendor's um, uh, credit um, of 225 million uh, that, together with cash from the balance sheet and um, firstly in uh, debt, uh, will finance the the acquisition. What we have said is um, obviously we are in a growth mode right now and. Um, uh, we have not uh, changed our distribution policy, which uh, remains firmly in the 60 cents uh, uh, per unit per, per year. 
But what we have said is that in the coming quarters, uh, the, our board uh, will um, revisit uh, the distribution, the dividend policy, um, and uh, potentially um, have this more link to uh, free cash flow generation uh, um, uh, going forward. So we expect that once uh, uh, we complete uh, this uh, a uh, very important transaction. We will be able to give uh, more visibility with regard to the distribution policy, but importantly, um, the the company uh, in terms of uh, both its uh, fleet footprint, but uh, definitely also its um, cash flow generation footprint uh, uh, is expected to grow significantly over the next uh, um, uh, two, two and a half years. Great, thank you, Jerry. And Richard, just to wrap it up. Yeah, for, for us, uh, dividend yield is an important part of our story. We're uh, fully funded, and that includes the two new bills which are delivering at the end of uh, next year. The policy we've got is, is very simple, really. It's to distribute the free cash flow to equity after certain investments in the existing fleet, such as uh, dry docks. And uh, that's, that's how we see it. Um, right now, as you mentioned, it's a... Uh, I think a 14% uh, yield uh, as, as at uh, today's uh, share price. Thank you. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. I think the easiest thing to do is uh, we've covered quite a few things from the macro down to some of the more company specific uh, uh, discussion. Uh, any final thoughts uh, as we can start with Carl, uh, Jerry, and then uh, Richard on, on anything that we haven't covered? I think we have covered quite a lot, but I think our uh, closing remarks are, are, is that we should uh, enable and continue to diversify our, our uh, sources of LNG uh, in the view of ESG and the, in particular the S in ESG. Uh, we think it's only right to develop Africa through uh, monetization of natural resources that will benefit them both economically and uh, getting access to their own uh, sources of energy. Uh, and, and the goal are remains highly committed to continue to expand our fleet of FLNGs. Um, and we have taken very significant steps in ordering our th potential third unit with committing more than $400 million into long-lead items and securing a donorship. So that's where, where Golar is right now. We're also just about to um, see startup of our second FLNG on the Greater Tortu area offshore Mauritania, Senegal, under a 20-year contract for BP. So I think we are just about to double our operating fleet and, and are looking for, for our third unit. So we are looking very optimistic about the future. Thank you, Carl. Jerry? I believe that with the recently announced acquisition, um, we uh, demonstrate uh, that uh, we believe uh, that the LNG shipping um, industry is where we want uh, to be. Um, once all ships are delivered, um, with, uh, we will have an fleet of brand new eight, 18 LNG uh, carriers which um, currently is the largest um, uh, two-stroke fleet listed in the U.S. Um, we hope that um, uh, through um, the um, through debt commercial management, uh, the very nice portfolio of 
charters that we have with standard expirations and very good quality counterparties ranging from energy majors to, to utilities. Um, and uh, also our right of uh, first refusal um, that we have on a number of energy transition vessels, such as uh, very large ammonia carriers, as well as uh, liquid CO2 carriers, we can be uh, we can become a bellwether not just uh, for LNG shipping but for um, energy transition shipping in general. Um, we do believe that, uh, as we discussed at the outset, LNG is going to play a major role in, in the uh, energy transition together with uh, um, other uh, sources of energy. But also, uh, over time, uh, as I said at the beginning, LNG infrastructure assets, including uh, LNG carriers, uh, are expected to play, in our mind, a significant role in the decarbonized world um, um, carrying biomethane, ELNG, um, or, or other types of uh, decarbonized um, hydrocarbons, uh, potentially as a, as a carrier for uh, hydrogen. So um, overall, we are quite uh, confident uh, that um, the uh, LNG industry will, um, and of course, LNG shipping will play a major role in energy transition. Thank you, Jerry. And Richard? Your final word? Yeah, for me, I'd watch out for where LNG is going and the distances involved. I'd uh, watch out for choke points such as the Panama Canal, as, as, as discussed. And the lastly, and, and not as yet discussed, but I'd watch out for where the forthcoming Russian volumes are going as well. Great. Well, thank you. That uh, times out just perfectly. Uh, we're going to go to our survey right now, and uh, we'll put that up before we open it up to Q&A. So if we want to do that, uh, you'll see the survey up here. Um, we have three questions, and we'll get uh, the results, and then we can go right to Q&A. Okay. All right. Give it another minute and then we'll jump into Q&A. But Liam, you can speak in the meantime if you have any questions to... Uh, I've got quite a few if I get gone. Oh, there, there are the results. There we go. 
Okay. All righty. And let's jump into Q&A now. Everybody has seen the... So before you go into the Q&A, you've done a great job as panelists. People are more bullish now after listening to your great uh, insight. That's Nicola. <laughs> All right. We'll start with, uh, I guess this is Carl. How many FLNGs do you see online in five years? And how many of those do you think Golar will be owning? Well, the world today uh, has uh, eight FLNGs. Um, that's uh, two from Golar, two ENI, two Petronas, one Shell, and one New Fortress Energy. I think in the next five years, we should see probably around 15 FLNGs, and our ambition is to double the fleet, so at least four ships by that time. Uh, you mean online, like for fixed and delivered producing, yes. Right, producing. Yeah. Uh, how long do you see LNG replaced by hydrogen, and can the LNG infrastructure also serve, service hydrogen shipping? Uh, I'll throw it out Happy to take it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, this, it'll take some time. Uh, and then the, there's going to be a question over, you know, what vector are you going to use to transport the hydrogen? And uh, some people are even thinking about using methane and LNG as, as the vector and then breaking out the hydrogen at the destination uh, with carbon black being the byproduct, uh, which is quite an interesting thought. Uh, then you've got uh, ammonia, uh, which uh, is another, uh, uh, another vector uh, which has certain advantages in terms of uh, it's not relative density compared to LNG, but it's got good energy density compared to hydrogen. And then you've got the uh, transportation of hydrogen itself, uh, which, which is quite, quite challenging for, for various reasons. I mean, I guess most fundamentally because the molecule is tiny and it uh, can escape through, through most things. Uh, so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, but I think in the near term, uh, LNG isn't actually a bad choice, particularly when you think that it reduces emissions by 50% versus coal. Thank you. Uh, I have a sort of a tangential question, but I'm interested to hear the answer. So, I mean, you all are tangentially involved in this. I know Golar actually did operate FSRUs, so they sold them. But uh, the question is, I know the webinar participants are mostly LNG shipping companies, yet FSR, FSRU operations sometimes is closely related to the shipping side. Do you think that is a good market to step into as a complementary service uh, for your customers? Happy I'll focus well. Carl first because yeah, he, he knows the space. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So Golar pioneered both FSRUs and FLNGs, uh, and and we were first movers into that business. And initially, it was an extremely attractive business. You could fix uh, twenty-year contracts as four to five times capex to EBITDA. 
Then you saw an inflation in number of players due to very strong economics and the fact that most of the, the host countries understood that if they put the contracts out with longer lead times, there would be um, a, a more competition and then obviously lower return. That drove economics down to basically 10 times capex to EBITDA. Um, then we, we basically, prior to the Ukraine situation, had an oversupplied market. But because of the remarkable pickup, which we alluded to earlier in the conversation of Europe going from 3 to 12 FSRUs, right now we have, we have a tight FSRU market. So right now um, it's, it's looking very interesting, but it's very fine, finely balanced. Um, so it is one where it's attractive, I'd say, to, to enter now, but uh, you don't need too many to do that because until you're, you're drastically overbuilt again. It only takes one FSRU too many to overbuild the, the market. It is a specialist market. It is, a, as, as Jerry alluded to earlier, um, an enabler of a nation to very quickly become an LNG importer. Uh, because it's significantly quicker to deploy than, than a land-based solution. Uh, so on the balance, it's more attractive now than it was uh, pre the Ukraine situation uh, because of the pickup of FSRU activity in Europe. I think that has proven that it's a good solution for many geographies, uh, but it's one uh, that should remain relatively specialized and not become a, a commodity like LND carriers. I know the uh, carriers versus FSRUs are only tangential, but uh, Richard, Jerry, have anything to share on that? Or... Sure. Um, it's the FSRU market is um, obviously a very interesting market, uh, and um, while the um, while the asset uh, very much uh, looks like an LNG carrier, it's uh, a very different uh, asset. So uh, stating the obvious, uh, this is uh, not um, uh, a business where you could jump in uh, overnight. Uh, there is also a, um, a number of infrastructure development elements in this business as opposed to um, uh, to LNG shipping, uh, which is a more commoditized uh, business. Uh, but I think uh, also uh, right now, the big stumbling block uh, remains uh, shipyard capacity. Um, even uh, if uh, somebody wanted to, uh, to look at the FSRU business, um, sourcing, um, FSRU new builds uh, is very difficult. There is only uh, a very limited uh, number of shipyards, predominantly South Korea, that uh, can uh, construct uh, such vessels. Um, and uh, they will be at a very high price um, and uh, with very late uh, delivery. The other way would be, of course, conversion. But again, uh, it's not necessarily a very cost-effective uh, uh, way, given also the lead time in terms of uh, equipment. So it is uh, definitely an interesting uh, market. Uh, it's, uh, it does not necessarily mean that if you are in one that you can move to, to the other. Um, uh, but uh, as far as we are concerned, at least, uh, I think we have our hands full with uh, taking, taking delivery of another 11 LNG carriers for the moment. Great. Uh, Richard, I have a capital allocation question directed at, uh, specifically to you. 
we did mention the cost of new builds, the value of the underlying assets uh, across the board. But the question is, uh, why not, with your the underlying NAV of your company, why not buy stock um, at a discount to NAV rather than pay the dividend? Now, it's clearly something that we'll consider when uh, we next uh, we next have this discussion. And uh, the the initial um, thinking was that we wanted to establish ourselves as a, a company that paid a reasonable dividend. We've now paid four dividends, so we've uh, we've we've got a full year uh, now, and uh, that's being reflected on the information services, so people appreciate you know just what our dividend yield is. Um, uh, but clearly, you know, going forward, we've got two ways to distribute uh, uh, surplus capital. One is by dividend, and one is by uh, buybacks. And if the valuation is significantly below NAV, uh, we'll, we'll most definitely consider the latter. Okay. And I have one more global question, and then we can wrap it up. Uh, what do you foresee the effect of the LNG sector will be if a pro-energy president is elected in the U.S. in November? Sorry, can you please repeat that? Sure. <laughs> uh, what do you foresee the effect on the LNG sector would be if a pro-energy president is elected in the U.S. in November of 2024? Okay, it's a fairly open question, but I think one of the, the key things that we look at when it comes to the U.S. is that, as we explained earlier on in this call, uh, the single largest incremental exporter of LNG in the world will be the US. Hence, what could be very sensitive is the US administration's view on those exports. If it is to put America first, then you could make the argument that it's better to keep energy prices lower in the US, reduce exports, uh, and capture a lower lower energy price to fuel um, Amer the American uh, industrial say, market. But so so in that context, it could curtail U.S. LNG exports and therefore drive non-Henry Hub prices higher and Henry Hub lower. Um, the other argument is that if you have uh, an administration that wants to, to maximize uh, or to do further incentives for, for gas exports, we could see even more U.S. gas export projects coming. However, the lead time to build a project like that is four to five years. So whatever happens, unless there's a ban on export, it won't have any immediate effect. Uh, but it's really weighing, I think, uh, domestic, uh, basically the spread between Henry Hub, JKM, and TTF. So the administration's view on export is really what I would focus on. Great. Thank you, Carl. Uh, Richard, any final thoughts on the subject? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree on how Carl framed that. Uh, I think my view is that the latter outcome is, is more likely, and that's because they'll prioritize the, the drilling of liquids and there'll be associated gas and uh, that'll need to find a home and uh, its home will be LNG. Great. Uh, that puts us at the top of the hour. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Please note the webinar will soon be made available for access upon demand at Capital Link's webinar website at www.capitallinkwebinar.com. 
and Capital Link's YouTube channel. I had to read that. I couldn't keep to keep that to memory. Anyway, thank you so much. It was a very uh, productive and uh, informative uh, hour, and I can't thank you again enough for your time. Thank you, Liam. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank you. Bye -bye. Cheers, guys.